Good morning. It's good to be here. Today we're here to finish 1 Corinthians chapter 4, to look into the Word of God and to understand what we learn from what God has said through his authoritative apostles, in this case, the Apostle Paul. There's quite a few verses, so I won't read the entire text at the beginning. We'll work our way through it. So going to the slide for 1 Corinthians 4, 17. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, and he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, the context, which I preached on last week, was that, uh, in a sense, and logically, Paul's children, those that is that he led to the Lord in Corinth as he preached there for 18 months, are to imitate him. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul is starting a Pauline group, because that's the very thing that he's against. Remember, at the beginning, they were saying, I am of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Peter, I'm of Christ. So he's preaching against any sectarian uh, idea. But what he is saying here is that they are to live lives that would be those God has called all Christians to live in which he has demonstrated in their midst. So we talked about that last week where he said, I'm not shaming, I'm not writing these things to shame you, but admonishing you as my dear children. So that's the context. So this hasn't happened. The problems continue. The church is going astray in many different ways there in Corinth. So Paul is determined that he's going to send Timothy. Timothy is mentioned many times in the New Testament. Um, There are two epistles written uh, where Timothy is in Ephesus, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. He's mentioned in Acts 16, Acts 17, and Acts 18, 19, and 20. And so God has raised up key people, including Timothy, who's someone who's faithful and understands the gospel and what's important. So Paul has sent him. Now, the implication is he hasn't arrived yet. I have sent. He's not there yet, but he will be. That's what's uh, happening there. Paul's ways implies refusing, boasting, and factionalism. No boasting, no factual, factions. I'm not saying as Paul claims they should just follow him as opposed to Peter or somebody else. But he's saying, this is how I live, it's how you need to live. Notice he says, as just as I teach everywhere in every church. There's no specific message that's only for the Corinthians. The gospel as preached by the apostles, including Paul, is for all people. God doesn't change. His message doesn't change. The definition of the church doesn't change. And what's important in any era of history or any geographical location is that 
we know Christ, serve Christ, understand his ways, and the church is not to be that which accommodates itself to the pagan culture all around. So that's why I would um, have always disagreed with those who would say, well, your church needs to get a vision for its situation. No, there's one vision, and it was given once for all by Christ and his apostles. And that is that was revealed that the church exists because of the gospel of grace, because of Christ crucified, faith in him, being redeemed, being called out of the world, being called together, being under Christ, who is the head, and serving him by faithfulness and trusting him in all things. So that's what's important. Now, to that end, let's go to verse 18. We're going to get to the heart of the problem here. Paul says this, 1 Corinthians 4, 18. Now, some have become arrogant as though I were not coming to you. In other words, well, yeah, Paul spent 18 months here. He's gone. Now we got, now we're going to have fun. We're going to do something different. And they are, some anyhow, are puffed up, inflated. Pusiao is to be puffed up. I think some translations uh, have that. Or in, overly inflated. Overly impressed with their own would-be importance. And that attitude is a poison pill for sanctification, for relationships within any local fellowship for Christian ministry, for what's important to be puffed up is a very bad thing. Now, this word, pusiao, uh, puffed up or inflated or arrogant, is used seven times by Paul himself. And he's the only one who uses it. Six of those are in 1 Corinthians. So that's really a problem there. After we finished chapter 4, I'm going to get into sections where Paul is dealing with problems that he knows about, letters of incent, and we're going to see just how messed up many things were in that church. And we'll, we'll preach through that as we keep going. In the present context, it's found in 4, 6, 18, 19, and 5, 2. What's it all about? I have it on my slide here. They are inflated with self-importance. Now, this is always a problem. Last week, we saw in the Gospel of Luke how at times when a profound revelation of the majesty of Christ, the power of Christ, and the mercy of God is revealed, ironically, the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. And one could say, I believe accurately, that church history is filled I'm from the time of the death of the last apostle all the way up to the present. Church history is filled with arguments about who's the greatest. And it's utterly inappropriate. Those who are redeemed, those whose sins are forgiven, 
those who are part of the body of Christ, have already received honor beyond what anyone deserves. To be part of the family of God is more than I deserve or anyone deserves. And to have our sins forgiven is an act of God's love and mercy that he provided through Jesus Christ. And it's a continual battle for us to keep our minds on that and give God the glory. Let me cite a previous use of this term in 1 Corinthians 4, 6. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And when I preached on that, I gave evidence that what is written refers to Scripture, which has been given by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, inerrant and infallible, is the very Word of God. Scripture alone is one of the most important principles that we can know. Again, coming up the next time I preach in 1 Corinthians 5, 2. And you are inflated, is our word, with pride. Should have mourned. So there were troublemakers, people that were preferring one over another, people who were jealous, angry, self-centered, basically life in the world. The battle is that the gathering of the Lord's flock, the congregation, would show love and patience, mercy, love for the truth, love for one another, compassion, and whatever are things that are gifts and fruits of the Holy Spirit. What a battle it's been throughout the history of the church for that to happen. The one thing we have to pull us back to dead center is Scripture, our belief in Christ, and God changing us. I believe that the teaching and preaching and application of the Word of God itself is a means God uses to change us into the image of Christ, which won't be completed until the resurrection. And so the Word of God needs to be taught with clarity. All preachers need to be willing to sit down with anyone. If, if we can miss a reading or we can get it wrong, we should be able to defend what we have to preach, not based on who the preacher is, but what, what, what God's Word actually says. That's our protection from harm. Paul will bring some things to bear on them in the issue of immorality that arose in the church. Let's go to verse 19. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are, here it is, puffed up, arrogant, but their power. Now, as I'm explaining this, you can be looking for a little bit back in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. We're going to have a review of something I preached from oh, probably a year ago. I'm not sure. But we'll go back and do a review 
and understand in context what word means and power right here. But as you're looking that up, get your finger in that. If the Lord wills. I want to point out that little phrase there. It's important. It's found elsewhere in the New Testament. Many people think that at least in the book of Acts, everyone had an unending hotline to heaven and knew exactly what was going to happen, when it's going to happen, and so on. But that's not the case. Even in the case of Paul, plans are made that don't always turn out as expected. In other cases, as the execution of a plan happens, there's a divine intervention, and things change, as in the Macedonian vision. In other cases, things happen that God uses. He uses all things to bring us to the right place at the right time. So why say, if the Lord wills? Because that is an attitude of dependence, humility, and a realization that there isn't some person, even an apostle himself, who knows everything, and it all happens according to how they thought. It isn't like that. In the book of James, we won't turn there, but if you think of it in James 4, those who were the businessmen saying, we're going to go here, we're going to do this, we're going to make a profit, and then James warns them, no, you're boasting. You ought to say, if the Lord's wills. It's an attitude of humility. We don't know everything. Not every one of our plans happen. So Paul models that here as he told them to be imitators of me. This is one way to do it, if the Lord wills. How many of you have expected something, made plans for it, and figured this is what's going to do it, this is the how it's going to work, this is what we're going to go for, and it doesn't happen. I put my hand up. I think we all have. But Christians aren't thereby defeated or failed. We learn. Many are the plans in the heart of man, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. And God uses all things and will bring benefit to whatever happens. So, have you found 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5 yet? All right. Let's look at words and power. What is that about? Lagos, the Greek word for words. Dunamis for power. Those are the words in the Greek. Now, let's go to 2, 1 through 5 for a little review so that we understand this in context. And when I came to you, brethren, Paul said, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Verse 2, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, stop right there. Superiority of speech in the Greek is literally excellence of word, lagos. So when he uses this same word in the Greek in a similar context that helps us understand meaning, lagos, this 
is about proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified, one of the persons that was mentioned in their sectarian attitude was Apollos. We know from Acts that Apollos was eloquent and very compelling in his ability to speak. Elsewhere, we know that Paul, not so much compared to him. And the point is this. It's not about excellence of logos, a word. It's not about how articulate the messenger is, but about the content of what's proclaimed, which is believed, practiced, and held to, that has the power to change dead sinners into saints, to change the lost into those who are rescued by God's grace, to change the very end and destiny of someone's life from hell to heaven. And I would rather hear the truth from an unimpressive preacher who tells me the truth than damning heresy from a silver-tongued order, order that can fill huge cathedrals. Because it's a waste of time. It will do you no good. And that's the point here. I did not come with excellence of word proclaiming the testimony of God. What is the testimony of God? Jesus Christ, God the Son, the Creator, died for sins once for all. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Um, probably didn't learn that in homiletics class. Do you know what that is? Homiletics is the class you take about how to give a sermon. I'm not suggesting suggesting that we shouldn't do our best to be articulate, but he couldn't compare with some others. didn't matter. He came preaching the truth. I was with you in weakness, fear, and much trembling, and my message, verse 4, and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So now we have logos again, persuasive words, logos, and the demonstration of the Spirit and power, dunamis. So what does he mean by that? I have a statement here I put in my notes. The issue was the Sophia, notice wisdom, that's the word in the Greek, Sophia. So the issue was the the wisdom of man expressed in words in contrast to the power of God through the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. The preaching of Jesus Christ and the cross is the word of God's power. That is the profundity of the gospel. And this isn't to say that every person who shares or preaches who shares the gospel, shouldn't do our best to make the word clear and meaningful. But the point is, the power of God to change lives is through what Christ has done once for all by the cross. And we, in our lifetime, 
have witnessed people with amazing oratory abilities fill massive uh, stadiums, arenas, and so on, and wow the crowds. But in the end, what did we hear? What was it about? Does anyone besides me remember a crystal cathedral? The reason I bring that up is uh, Robert Schuler grew up in a little town in Newkirk, Iowa, uh, a short bike ride from the farm I grew up on. He was obviously quite older, and he was a local boy. He ended up with the Crystal Cathedral. But what did he have in this massive place? What did he have to say? We need a new reformation of self-esteem. Well, how exactly is self-esteem Christ crucified? What is self-esteem? By the way, he got his material from uh, the mind sciences of the mid-20th century and so on. It doesn't help us any, even as really kind of an annoying uh, sinner, even as a student at Iowa State, I had plenty of self-esteem. What I didn't have was any humility. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'll be successful. Nuts to you all. So that's what it looks like when you fill an arena based on persuasive speech. But where's the power of God in feeling good about yourself? The power of God comes through Christ crucified. So the issue is Jesus Christ and him crucified. The power to redeem dead sinners and make them part of the family of God. And then continuing on, verse 5, 1 Corinthians 2, 5, so that, purpose statement, your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So by definition, the power of God in context is the power of Christ crucified, the unique one, the only begotten of God, the sinless one who died for sins, who shed his blood to redeem us and was raised on the third day in the preaching of that message. Whatever else is lacking any significant substance. Here's one further statement that I put in my notes. Power to inspire followers is not power to save and to sanctify. Power to inspire followers is not the power to save and to sanctify. That's something that I wrote, thinking that it helped express this idea that we can apply. Now let's look at the idea of the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 4.20. 1 Corinthians 4.20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. So now what we want to do is understand what Paul meant by that in this context. And I'll focus on this some in my applications today. The kingdom of God is a very broad concept, and it's spoken of a number of places 
spoken of in the Gospels. It's mentioned in Acts. Paul mentions it here in the present, but generally in Paul's writings, it's about the future, the resurrection, and the eternal kingdom. So in what sense does the kingdom of God consist in power rather than words? Well, let's look at some of the other contexts where this is used in the future. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10, it says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. Let me explain so we have a little looking forward to in a few weeks when I preach again on 1 Corinthians 5. They had problems in Corinth. In fact, some of it is so ugly, I'll have to be work hard to preach it. Well, it's just really nasty, ugly stuff that was going on, but we're going to deal with it. Things that should never happen, much less happen in churches. And the point that he makes in chapter 6 is the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. You can talk about power, the kingdom, who you are, all that great stuff, but if you're living like the world, you're not inheriting the kingdom. You're lost. In 1524, in the end, he hands the kingdom over to the Father, so that's future. In 1550, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom. Here's our challenge. What happens to us now, here and there, as we go through life in this very fallen and sinful world with all the sorrows and difficulties would seek to overwhelm us and make us think this is all there is, what's the point? But the fact is, the future of the kingdom of God in its fullness, complex idea, it's eternal, it's glorious, and it's greater than anything anyone has seen or experienced. The future, the resurrection, the perfection, the eternal kingdom, that we must believe God's promises to believe it's real. It's so real in the future that we believe it, and this present suffering is not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed in us. Now, how do we believe that? We believe that the same way we believe there's such a thing as sin and forgiveness of sins. There's such a thing as God at work in us and through us. There's such a thing that God does care about us because we believe what God's done and he saves us and powerfully works in our lives. So the kingdom is a complex idea. In the present, this is what's happening. As people believe the gospel and trust in him, one by one they become citizens of the kingdom. In this world, but not of it. Related to the king, Jesus, who reigns at the right hand of God, Psalm 110, verse 1, cited throughout the New Testament, and he hears us and cares for us. I have a statement about this. What is now, what is now, is faith in Christ through the gospel, which means coming, coming under the sovereign reign of God as one of his own. 
Now we have forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the Messiah who reigns at the right hand of God. Those who know him serve him now by faith, knowing that he keeps his promises, that we will be part of the future promised kingdom. I think I just preached that, but I wrote it down in case I would forget. So that's what it is now. I promise you that that message is true, but it's not ever going to be the majority report in Christendom. Christendom is man building kingdoms in the name of Christ that have nothing to do with Christ most of the time. I mentioned here Romans 14, 17. I'll quickly read it to you. It's it's on the screen as far as the reference. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. All the things that consume us, that create difficulties and disputes and and make life very difficult, relationships get frayed, problems arise, almost all of them have to do with things that are not exactly righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I remember when I was up until recently, I really enjoy working on cars. I've had to quit doing that for various reasons. But I remember when we were building cars and there was a young guy who was a fairly new Christian and we were working on cars and we were heading for some parts and he looks over Look at that. A cherried out 1966 Olds 442. And then he says, but I'd rather have righteousness, peace, and joy. <laughs> he had to remind himself of that. That's a great 442. I wish I had that, but peace and joy would be better. And so we do need to remind ourselves that even the greatest things that we would love in this world are not as great as having the peace of God. I'll look at Colossians 1, 13 and 14 in our applications. People are now workers for the kingdom. Let me cite this passage if you want to jot it down. Philippians 3.20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior, and we eagerly eagerly wait for him as we have citizenship in heaven. One more verse. Paul leaves them with uh, a little concern about what will happen. Of course, he hopes they'll repent. 1 Corinthians 4.21, What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And so that would be analogous to the father needing to discipline the child. How do you want it? Well, the rod, I think, as we look on, will would be more church discipline. All right, you won't repent. You're going under church discipline. Gentleness would be what would be appropriate to the one who realizes he or she's in error and needing discipline 
to get things straightened out and pray that that would happen. So it says in Galatians 6, 1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you will not be tempted. And that's how we are to look at it. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. But that happens when we trust him. Doesn't imply that the lamb the future won't bring wrath to his enemies. So we need to turn to Christ. Let's look at some applications. First one's pretty simple. The king calls us to himself. Who's the king? Jesus. I know, I remember we at one time when I wanted to start writing, some pastors I knew, I asked if they'd come and we'd talk about theological issues. And one of the things that came up was theocracy. What's a theocracy? The answer is it depends on who you defined as Theo. If Theo is some politician, it's not going to work out. Theos is the Greek word for God. But if Jesus is the king, then we need to know we're under him. Then a true understanding of the kingdom will not inflate us, but humble us. How many times did Jesus talk about the kingdom and what it's like? In the Gospels, many, many times. And often in the context of people claiming to be great when they really weren't. Now let's go to the Gospel itself, as shown in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Mark 1, 14 and 15. I have a slide here. I chose the Lexham English Bible. Here's what it says. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now let me explain that and then tell you what the gospel is all about in this context. John here is John the Baptist the forerunner who spoke about the coming one, that is the Christ. Now, he'd already been taken into custody, and now Mark starts with this, introducing the gospel to us. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, the time is fulfilled, uses terminology in the Greek that would indicate a crucial moment. Kairos, in this context, kairos is a word for time. There's two words in the Greek. Chronos would be chronological time. Now, there's always spillover in context, so I'm aware of that. But kairos would be qualitative time. Time goes on, 
This is the crucial moment. In this context, it means that, Kairos. This is the crucial moment. This is the moment of history that is going to confront the entire world, but starting right here in Galilee, the time is fulfilled, come to fulfillment. The critical moment is another way to translate that. How true that is. Here, those who are looking for the kingdom of God, John the Baptist came preaching repentance. The people are longing for the kingdom, but they don't understand what it's going to be like. They're thinking that when it comes, most certainly, the Gentiles will be defeated, the enemies of God will be banished, and Israel will be given its place of prominence at that point. It's not what happens, because judgment comes, and this is the time when Messiah comes and dies for sins. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has now the I chose the LEB come near the word in the Greek, be drawn close, is confronting them. And what happens here is the very presence of the king, not seen that way, the one born in the manger, the one who's humble the one who seemed to be like one of us, though he's virgin-born and sinless, that one is the king come into history, but not to defeat the people that they hated, but to die for sins. So the presence of the king is the key thing. Let me cite William Lane's commentary on Mark. In announcing the kingdom of God, the accent falls, says Lane, upon God's initiative and action. The kingdom of God is a distinctive component, he says, of redemptive history. It belongs to God who comes and invades history in order to secure man's redemption. God invades history to secure redemption. He goes on. The emphasis falls upon God, who is doing something, doing something, and who will do something that radically affects men, in that context meaning humans, in their alienation and rebellion against himself. So that's bringing us to the next point. God, the Son, has come to his own in Galilee, invaded history, confronting the human race, starting with his own, and what does he say? Repent. John the Baptist said that. In other words, this is the crucial moment. If you go on now, living the way you did, believing the way you did, doing what you did, thinking what you did, and having all these false ideas about your own self-importance, then this is going to be bad. Repentance is called for. Continuing with my citation of Lane, Mark clearly understands that it is Jesus' own appearance which is the decisive 
event in the redemptive plan of God. The coming of the kingdom remains future, but it is certain precisely because God has begun to bring it to pass the coming of his son, unquote, from William Lane's commentary. That's exactly the case. The son, the sinless one, the virgin-born son of God, came and said, repent and believe in the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel, Evangelion, is good news about the coming of salvation through Jesus Christ. As we preach and will continue to, God sent his son who died for sins once for all. Redemption has to do with forgiveness, atonement, the substitutionary atonement, the sinless one dying for sinners. And what he did is unique. Only Jesus Christ predicted his own death, burial, and resurrection, pulled it off, did it, was raised, and appeared to many witnesses. The Christian gospel is not asking anyone to take a blind leap of faith into religion, to believe in something because it's better to believe in something, to be religious because it's a good thing to be religious. We're not saying don't neglect your religion. Religion that needs sustenance or dies for lack of attention is not what we're talking about. We're talking about God himself who will do what he says he will do. And so the message is to believe on the Lord Jesus. Whatever your religion has been, believe on him because he's the very creator, the one who brings redemption. The problem of the human race, talked about this last week, in Adam all die, is sin and alienation from God. The answer is forgiveness, redemption, being born of God, and serving him by grace and trusting in him for forgiveness of sins. Repent, turn from how you were going, and believe in the gospel. What a simple statement about what we need to do. To be citizens of the kingdom, you need to repent and believe the gospel. Today, turn to Christ, trust in him, believe in him, to receive forgiveness of sins, citizenship in heaven, and the opportunity to live for him as part of the family of God. Now, let's turn to a couple verses that are some of my favorite um, because how of it explain, these verses explain what happens at redemption. That term comes up here. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. What happens when we believe in Christ and we're part of the kingdom in that sense? Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is so essential. This is so much the essence of our status if we believe in Christ. 
And frankly, it's shocking how few theologians or missiologists, as many are called, and church planners and those who are church growth experts who claim to have the power or whatever even think about this passage. And when I presented some of this to different pastors, it's, oh, well, I'm not saying no one takes it seriously, but we have to. Because this is a decisive change that puts us in a totally different state. Now, what does it mean to be in the domain of darkness? It means more than having a demon and needing an exorcist. At some point in history, if I said something like that, had I been around, most people say, what? But now they have movies about it. So people believe in demons. Don't you hate October when they put all that stuff on TV? Satan did this and the demon, all these. It's just a bunch of, I, I can't stand it. I do not like Halloween. There, I'm telling you. Nor do I like horror movies or demons or all this stuff. It's, a, it's garbage. But here's the fact. Even if your life seems totally materialistic and secular, and you go about your business, and you're kind of sort of normal, and don't have a lot of spiritual things going on, if you haven't repented and believed the gospel, you know where you, you are spiritually? You're in the domain of darkness. That's just what it is. That's the two domains. So he rescued us from the domain of darkness. Now, that he can do that is made very obvious in Luke 8, which I refer to many times. The guy from the Gerizines who had thousands of demons, a couple thousand, chained up, obviously a maniac, obviously horrible condition, who was so delivered by Jesus that just then he was trusted to go be a witness in his own country. There you go. Rescued from the domain of darkness. Whether it's that or just being an ordinary person, we all need to be rescued. Transferred. So those, even if they don't, if they're secular humanists, they're materialists, they don't believe there's a demon, they don't believe there's a Satan, there's a, they don't believe there's spirits, that's pretty rare, but there's some like that, they're still under the domain of darkness. And anyone coming to Christ is rescued from that domain. We're still in the world, but not of it. Transferred. So those who repent and believe the gospel are transferred into, or to, I think it's ice in the Greek, if I remember right, the kingdom of his beloved son. So transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son means we're not under Satan, we're under Christ. And we have access to the throne of grace that we are under his care, his concern as his sheep, who he cares for and who he protects and who he loses none of, and that he intercedes for us and that we bring our concerns to him 
and he hears us. How glorious is it that Jesus Christ, the ascended Lord, the very creator who sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, hears us individually, cares about us, intercedes for us. And then it says in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the called little alongside one, also intercedes for us. And he's given us the pleasure, the privilege of praying for one another. Those simple, basic realities are more profound than we can even fully comprehend in this life. And yet, so many are bored with all of that, and they go looking for an exorcist or an inner healer or some great prophet who can cast the demons out of Christians and make your life better. It's just, I, I would, God got me out of that. And this is one of the passages that has just riveted my attention ever since. So if you're in the kingdom of his beloved son, then the things that characterize the kingdom now, righteousness, peace, and joy, and the Holy Spirit, are the things that we would look for, plus other gifts and fruits of the Spirit in whom we have redemption. Redemption is a term, rescued, by the way, is a good word too, Rome. I'll, I'll get, I've preached on that before. We didn't need just a little change of direction. We need to be rescued. Now, we're worse than a drowning person. Eric has used this one, who could get pulled into, out of the water into the boat. We're dead at the bottom of the sea, spiritually, and we're rescued. Redemption would be bought out of slavery. We were slaves to sin, fear, death, bondage, and he redeemed us, paid the price, and we have forgiveness of sins, which is the one thing that would keep us from the eternal kingdom, that we're living for sin. May that be true. And I hope others hear this and believe on the Lord Jesus. I, I preached on this. I looked this up. August 17, 2014, I preached a sermon on these verses. It's on the website, ggf.church. I hope I did a good job. I didn't have time to go look. But I know the content was probably good. I was pretty sick back in 2014. Colossians 2.18, our last verse. Now, this one... I also preached on it a while back, years ago. Very important, and it's misunderstood. Very, very misunderstood. Colossians 2.18. We want to look at this word inflated, uh, that I've been talking about. Puffed up, arrogant, uh, the inflated mind. Let no one disqualify you. Colossians 2.18, Holman Christian Standard Bible. Let no one disqualify you insisting on ascetic practices, the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm, and inflated without cause by his unspiritual mind. Literally, says fleshly, the mind of the flesh. Wow, I can't unpack all this, but let me give you an interest in learning it, okay? The thing that comes in and derails people who have been transferred out of the domain of darkness 
into the kingdom of his beloved son, his false teachers who come and say, no, forget that. That's too simplistic. You need to learn how to navigate the world of the spirits. You need a visionary experience. You need to know what beings are there and what angels and who's over what territory and which one is doing what. I have a whole series of emails from a, one of these uh, teachers. If you ask me, I can tell you dozens of them. I just save them when they come. Who claims that you can learn the secret of access to the heavenly realm. That particular teacher is taking this warning, ignoring it, and doing exactly what Paul said, do not do, and don't let anybody disqualify you. How do they disqualify you? Well, you don't know how to do it. Have you been to heaven? Have you seen angelic visions? Have you accessed the realm where the angels are worshiping because they claim they have that. Ascetic practices means deprive yourself until you get into an altered state. Use some technique. Learn how to get gain. They they, they uh, um, insult the rest of us and say, well, you're dummies and you don't know how to do it. So if I knew how, I could just go to heaven and have an experience. Now, well, come to the meeting, the secret place meeting. That's what they call it. Well, it's a secret place. You probably shouldn't be going there. That's a stern warning, and I don't mind issuing it. That draws aside so many people. Ascetic practices not prescribed in the Bible. The worship of angels, I explained it in a sermon that was preached on March 22, 2015, when we were in Colossians. You can look that up on a GGF website, but... There's been a debate about what that means, and here's what I believe is the best reading. It is worship of angels in a sense, claiming to have access to angelic worship, either to destroy bad fate or break curses, or to have some experience that's before the time that's not for us now. Somehow, there's a claim to something that ordinary Christians don't have. And I did a lot of research on that, and I can share some of that with you if you if you want. Claiming access helps explain it. Claiming access to a visionary realm. It's a good translation. Let me make it simple. Objective reality is your friend. Hope that's not shocking. Objective reality is your friend. Why do I say that? Because God gave us what we need, rationality, physical senses, the ability to know the difference between food and poison, the ability to work, the ability to solve the issues and problems of life, to function in the realm we're in. We're not equipped to function in the realm of the spirits because we don't know what's going on. We get into that realm, the spirits win, we lose. The Bible puts us into the objective reality that we can know and understand. And that causes pride, inflated, love cause. It may seem spiritual, but the Greek word there, sarx, is fleshly. So it can be called fleshly spirituality. Now, a little 
preview that eventually we'll get to 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 8, 1. Now concerning food sacrificed to idols, we know that, quote, we all have knowledge, probably one of their slogans. Paul says, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Dear saints, walk in the righteousness, peace, enjoy the Holy Spirit, love one another, proclaim the gospel, stay in the realm God put us in. We're safe here in objective reality. And heaven waits the future. Don't try to go there now by going to somebody's meeting because uh, you don't know what you might get. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. Thank you for inspiring your apostles to write these things for us that we might be protected and warned and given grace to live in ways that would please you. We pray for those that we know who got caught up in the things that are harming them. May they get free. Pray for people who hear the gospel, that they can be convicted, repent, and turn to you for salvation. We thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus' holy name. Amen.